Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the front three, or more of a front two on this one. It's myself and none other than Nico Morales. How are you doing tonight, Nico? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself, Chris? I'm not bad. This this World Cup stuff, it's it's not slowing down, but I haven't reached the point of suffocation yet. I'm still kind of enjoying the fact there's three games every day and there's about an hour break in between, so just enough time to walk around the block and then come back. Are you enjoying it? massively i think uh it's a nice thing to like wake up every day and see that there's a game on at 8 a.m and then you know a couple hours down the line and we're already past the stage of like there's no more days where there's going to be four but it's still nice it's this festival of football i think is uh one of the commentators called it when it was in brazil um i think is an adequate description for the world cup as a whole regardless of where it is so yeah i've i've really enjoyed the tournament this summer i know i bitched and moaned a little bit before the uh before it started about the quality maybe but it's still super fun like that's the one complaint that i don't, i guess i don't really understand anymore is like it's still football like it's still fun so yeah i've i really enjoyed it 
it is. It's still fun. That's what we should take away from every game of football. It would be easy to forget that the rest of club football is still going on around it, like some series of planets orbiting a giant sun that is football. First on the non-World Cup news schedule or rotor, if you will, or, or minutes, is Jack Wilshere's left Arsenal. It was quite an emotional Instagram post. Uh, I think it was in four parts altogether. And then he released a video to go with it. Now, in fairness, Jack has made his entire life with Arsenal. He was there from a young boy, made his debut at 16. I think it was in the Emirates Cup. That's when I remember seeing him play first. So he has very much gone from boy to man with Arsenal. I don't think there's a huge level of shock with this one, Nico, but... Is there any way you think he should be looking towards for his next employer? Um, in terms of like where he should go next, like where I think he should probably try to try to end up in terms of like league or, or team or I I think what, if you feel confident in stating a team and matchmaking, that's fine. A league, which whatever you think is the best landing spot for Jackie Boy. <sighs> that's that's super difficult. I think just to talk about for a second the context of the move, I like it because he said that the reason that he's leaving is because even though he was maybe offered less money than he would have liked, um, he had an honest conversation with Unai Emery, who obviously is the new Arsenal manager, and he told him, you know, if you stay, that's fine, but, like, you're not going to play that much. And I think that's a good thing. Like, there's a lot of deadwood at Arsenal. There's a lot of maybe more sentimental things that are tied down, much like Arsene Wenger himself, that kind of need to go and people that need to be making um, different moves in their career. And I think Jack Wilshere is probably one of them. Um, he's often been debated, whether it be with England or Arsenal, and people have many different opinions about him. So I think both for him and the club, it's probably the better decision. But as far as the next move goes, I think I would have really liked to see what he did instead of going on loan um, at Bournemouth, which was kind of like a safe thing in terms of both his career and you know wanting to stay in the Premier League. There was a, a, a move rumored a long time ago talking about perhaps the door was open for him to go to Roma. Um, when that loan period came to be and he didn't want to I don't necessarily think that's the case anymore I think Roma have gotten demonstrably better and they've made some solid moves in the transfer market uh, you know to to be a better team in, in Serie A and try to be you know uh, challengers for the Scudetto but I would generally like to see him in a different league I think that would give him a lot of tactical intuition and just generally give him a wider perspective on life which I think everyone regardless of your nationality or your upbringing probably would benefit from so I want to see him in a different league leave the Premier League stop eating fish and chips or whatever it is you people eat and go somewhere have some pasta or some Mediterranean food (laughs) I like it strong strong life advice from from Nico there one Midfielder who is looking to broaden his horizons is Emre Chan. He's off to the aforementioned Serie A and Juventus specifically. Now, one of the things I found interesting about this was how this was perceived as thinly veiled digs that he called Juventus such a huge club and the proudest day of his life and the proudest moment of his career and those kind of uh, compliments thrown to, to the old lady. Are you a fan of this signing? Is this a deal that you think is, is good? I think it's fair to say that Liverpool have already replaced him with, with Fabinho and Naby Keita coming in. But is this a good deal for Juventus, more importantly? 
I think so. I mean, I think Allegri probably looks at a player when they talk about it in terms of recruitment and understands exactly what he wants. And Chan has been out the door for a long time. Like, we've known this is coming. As you said before, Fabinho is his replacement. He's probably a better replacement than Chan. I'm not a massive fan of his. I don't think he... And maybe that's because of the perception I have of him in a Klopp system, and I think that will probably change going under Allegri. But I think it's a good move for everyone involved. I think it's a good move for Chan, Juventus, and Liverpool. So I, I'm a fan of it. But yeah, I, I'm not a massive fan of his because of the attributes that maybe he had a lack of in a Klopp system. But I think that'll probably be covered up by the by how you know Massimiliano Allegri uses him at Juventus. So like I said, I think it's a good move. Yeah, it usually is a bit of a seal of approval when you sign you on a, a free transfer. They're not known for being made mugs in the, the market. So I th- I th- I'm inclined to, to agree with your assessment. And hey, working with Max Allegri, living in Turin, it's not a bad life these footballers have. I think it's fair to say. Another young man who's on the move, Julian Nagelsmann. God, my transitions have been seamless today. He has decided that he will leave Hoffenheim at the end of next season. So in the summer of 2019... And his next job is already assured for him, which is a beautiful way to live your life. He will be heading to RB Leipzig. Now, the German folk I trust, the likes of Archie Rintut, people like that, think this is a fantastic move from Leipzig. Some people have said that from Nagelsmann's perspective, it's a little bit of a sideways move. Because obviously he was talked about as buying boss. I'm pretty sure he could have caught some interest from Italy, Spain, the Premier League, even if he wanted. What do you think about this one Nico is this a firstly is this a good move from Leipzig and secondly is this the kind of transition you would want to be making if you were in Julian Nagelsmann's beautifully tailored shoes I think the the reason I understand the sentiment that people are trying to push across when they say maybe it's a sideways move in terms of like pedigree Leipzig have only just recently come up for the first time they're a club that you know have a lot of I guess in terms of history, like there isn't much of it. They had they rose exceptionally quickly because they spent a ton of money, like three or four times the amount any club have spent in the lower divisions, and they rose quickly because of that. And in their first season, they did really well in the Bundesliga because they had that maybe more unexpected style of play. They could, I think, to a certain extent, they could enjoy what we would call the Leicester effect. Like not everybody was prepared for it and so they didn't exactly know how to play them they didn't know if they should be fully defensive and try to counter or if they should try to possess the ball against them and they they massively enjoyed that in their second season under Hassan Hutel we saw a dip uh, from them in terms of like beating other teams and, and performance like they were still good but I think people understood how to play them they understood the the RB Leipzig style and and how it could best be exploited I think for that club it's it's a good thing that they're moving on a year from now though um, to Nagelsmann because he has a style of football that I think can more sustainably be played as like a team that want to cement themselves at closer to the top of the table. And what it gives him is the financial power to go out and buy players who are good enough to perpetuate that kind of football. With Hoffenheim, I don't know if he has the resources to do that. I understand um, even with some of the players that have left, but now after that, he had the ability to do that. He had a relatively successful second season um, with Hoffenheim or in terms of he had a breakout year and then he continued to do well. But I think that's what he'll be looking to bring to Leipzig, except probably with more financial resources, which is the key. If you have better ingredients, then you come out with a better pizza, right? So I don't know why I said pizza, but you come out with better food. So <laughs> I appreciate um, the yeah. analogy nonetheless. 
the one interesting thing I think that is, is nestled in this was news that broke, I think, last night, if not the night before. Bear with me on that timeline. That Jesse Marsh was being tagged to uh, essentially fill the void that is currently presenting itself at RB Leipzig. You would have to think then, if if that is still true, which I'm led to believe it is through sources in inverted commas, that he will essentially keep the seat warm for uh, Nagelsmann to come in in the summer of 2019. I know that you're maybe not hugely familiar with, with MLS. Essentially, Marsh's Red Bull team are not terribly dissimilar to their cousins in Leipzig. Is this a good move from an American perspective, do you think? Is, are you pleased almost to see one of your countrymen get a shot in, in a major European league, arguably with no pressure because no matter what happens after that season, he's, he's going to be moved on for, for someone else? Um, yeah, I think I, I always like to see Americans doing well and the bridge to that. It definitely makes sense that it's in the Bundesliga because not only have there been, I think some coaching staff have from, from America and the, from the United States have gone there and done well, um, in, in like a lesser known sense, but also a lot of players have taken steps in their career in the Bundesliga. So it makes sense that it's there. Yeah. I definitely appreciate the fact that whether he does, you know, there it's 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 a win-win situation as you're outlining. Like if he does really well, then that reflects well on the coaching system here in the United States, which is still kind of fundamentally broken. But that's a different topic. Um, and even that, you know, if he does poorly, it's not going to matter all that much. So I think it's a win-win, and it's probably a positive for U.S. soccer in general. I'm inclined to agree with that. Um... And good luck to Jesse as well. He's a, he's a very nice chap. I've had the pleasure of his uh, company in a couple of press conferences out in, in Harrison, New Jersey, um, where Red Bull Arena is, is situated. We can now return, though, to the World Cup, the beautiful World Cup. And in fact, later on, we'll have our good friend Elliot Hackney with his first dispatch from Russia, um, where it's, <laughs> I'm led to believe, fly-infested or midgy-infested, the poor guy. Um, but he was, was good enough to come on for a couple of minutes. We'll have that later on. But in the meantime... We're going to jump in. and Nico, one of the first things you said to me when we loaded up this call was, I think Morocco are going to be the best team ever not to get a point in this World Cup. Talk to me. Hit me with, just explain this. Flesh it out for me. Yeah, it's really sad. Uh, Herb Renard's press conference after this most recent game, he kind of went up in tears and talked about how proud he was of both his players, the technical staff, everybody that was involved in this journey to the World Cup. And, you know, they were in a difficult group. Iran are not a terrible team. They were compact defensively as kind of we'll talk about with Spain and, and they were proficient in that regard and you know the, the way they that they conceded to them was an own goal and then they faced a, a, a decent Portugal team that has Ronaldo which is you know Ronaldo um, and I think in each and every game you know you can you can look at some of these other teams at the World Cup and say okay they're clearly falling short of expectation because of some fallacy in some way and you can say you know you can say at the base level something similar about morocco they have talented players they have a pretty talented coach who's kind of been reduced i think um what's his name the guy for alex stewart uh kind of talked about how people were pointing out oh you know he managed cambridge and that's why this is such a great story but he's done other stuff in the game as well um so for you know, for all this talent, both player and coaching wise, you can say, yeah, maybe they they fell short of expectations. They're 
on track to be a team that hasn't scored outside of an own goal um, in this World Cup and, like we were saying before, have zero points. But at the same time, I think in each and every one of the games that they played, they played as well as they possibly could, and it just didn't work out for them. And I think that's probably the saddest thing here is that you have a lot of players that are good, like Zayek and Benatia and some other guys, and they're just not going to be able to make the dream go on any longer. And they didn't do anything um, negative to to have that happen, but that's just the reality. And and it's it's kind of sad to see that. So I think we can all shed a tear and pour one out for a. Uh, for Morocco tonight. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's funny with Ronaldo. He does absolutely adore Africa, the continent. I've noticed. I've read little things that said, kind of, he he feels more free in Africa, and he couldn't ever see himself living anywhere else. And I think you're right. It is a shame that uh, a country that leading into this tournament had so much promise um, and and so much positivity surrounding them is potentially going to leave us without. A single point, and if they don't even score against Spain, the the only goal that will have come will have been an own goal against Iran in their in their opener. So it it is a bit of a shame. They do obviously face Spain, as we talked about there in in their next game. Spain, who faced Iran just the other evening in a game that was it was an entertaining watch. I have to admit, I know that you and I have had back and forth about whether. Iran actually did anything, whether it was just a lot of hot air from a, a tactical standpoint. But it was definitely an entertaining clash. And I think we saw potential insights into Spanish frailties um, that could present themselves against better teams. Um, for you personally, where are you sitting with this Spain side in, in the context of the tournament? I know you talked about them as your potential winners, I think you said. Or you saw them as winners? That was, Yeah, that was before the sacking of uh, Lopetegui, so... Is, Maybe is that my... change now? Where do you? I guess the question is, where do you sit with them now, having seen them play twice under Hierro, and and seeing what you have? It's definitely not as bad as I thought. I thought maybe after the sacking of Lopetegui, you know, we could see everything that they wanted to do kind of crumbled before us. You know, you never want to see a coach leave, and all of the furore surrounding that team didn't bode well for their expectation of the tournament. And I think when you combine that with you know, the general sentiments of, and this is kind of something I wrote about for The Ringer this week, like good teams with a lot of talent can be pigeonholed into a style of football that's ultimately really difficult to perpetuate, especially at the World Cup. Like if you're, and we'll talk, I think this kind of specifically relates to the Iran game. Like if you have David Silva, Sergio Busquets, Andres Iniesta, Diego Costa, and like all these star-studded players on one team versus Iran, a team of players that really no one knows, and that's not to be disrespectful to Iran, but it's just the reality. Like you're going to be, you're going to have the onus of expectation upon you. You're going to have the onus of possession upon you. You have to possess the ball. You have to create good chances. And when a team just packs it in and puts their life on the line, and literally in the case of Iran, they will lay down on the goal line for you to, you know, to stop you from scoring. There's only so much you can do because that's the way that football is built. Like it's not like basketball where it's five on five, the the floor is spread out, and if you just give the ball to LeBron James every time against a five of you know five players that are demonstrably way worse than you, then you know you'll just wreck them because you're just physically better. That's not how it works in football because that's just not the nature of the game. The, the it's different for football because that's just. You know that, like I was saying, the nature of the game is is inherently different. Um, but I feel good about this Spain side because 
they have they were patient against an Iran team. They looked to break them down in a in an artful and masterful way. And that I think it it's a strategy that they will be able to repeat. It's not just like random luck. I know the the goal was kind of a deflection off Diego Costa, but they definitely across the game, and I think that was reflected in the analytics as well, like the expected goals. They created enough, more than enough chances to at least score once, um, and they stopped Iran from creating enough chances to, you know, score less than one so i'm generally impressed and it gives me more hope the first two games that i've seen from them um the difficulty is that i think i want to see them go up against a better side than portugal because i think first of all on a different day like david de gea which many people would say is probably the greatest goalkeeper in the world doesn't make that mistake and nacho doesn't give away a penalty so maybe it's 3-1 or spain win in general but Mm -hmm. yeah i think there is still a lot to be exploited with them just because of the way that they play and we'll kind of see i think it'll pretty much entirely depend on who they go up against is is kind of how it'll pan out okay fair enough the the last round of games in that group is iran spain portugal morocco now you mean morocco spain uh yes, excuse me, Morocco, Spain, Iran, Portugal. Thank you for yeah. keeping me. It's just too many games. I swear. Essentially, at this point, it then becomes a potential shootout between Portugal and Iran. Um, Carlos Queiroz up against the nation of his birth, um, who he actually coached at one point. Beautiful. It's all just one big tiny circle of people interchanging. Do you see a likelihood in which Iran? actually take that spot i mean you you like i say you've been quite dismissive of, of what you thought iran actually did against spain but a lot of people did give them credit so do you see an eventuality where that that pressing that they put onto spain actually wins something with with portugal and, and takes them to a victory i think i know you and i have had our disagreements about the game um i think they were because it's not as easy it's not you know it's easier said than done like it's easy from a relative of like good players and good professional players perspective to be to sit in and be compact there are other teams that can or if you just put like 11 people out there that won't be able to do that to do that and they'll still get ripped apart by professional players but i think i think them versus portugal is going to be a really good game because i could actually see that happening like portugal are not that good they were run over in the midfield in their last game and they have a lot of weaknesses to expose like their luck their or sorry their run to the Euro 2016 final was uh, very lucky and yeah they came out winner deserved winners in some of those games in the run up too but they're a super weird team and I really wouldn't it's not the craziest idea to think that Iran sit in be compact once again allow Portugal to come on to them and then whether it be on the counter-attack or like on a lucky moment a long throw or set piece they 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 score one and then it's one nil and then Portugal out of the competition like it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility, um, so you know it's it's definitely possible for them for them to lose. I'll take that. I'll take that as a maybe. Um, <laughs> although I, I can imagine you don't often deal in maybes. Um, a team that doesn't have to deal in maybes is France, um, who emerged victorious against Peru. Much like their opening game, really, against Australia, they weren't convincing, they weren't sensational. Um, there was a lot of parallels, you could argue, with Euro 2016, in which they started with a very meek showing against Romania, but grew and grew and grew and obviously hit the final um, before Adair's sensational winner. 
Where do you stand with this France team right now? Because there's a lot of criticism coming to Didier Deschamps. He's seen as someone who's not making the most of, of the talent at his disposal. I believe there was a Lequipe journalist who likened his tactics to Sunderland, um, which I must admit gave me a little bit of a chuckle. He said he just picked a random championship team. Um, <laughs> obviously, Sunderland are a League One team, so he was technically wrong. But I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just being really facetious. I love you, really, Sunderland. I like you, Sunderland. Where do you stand with the Champs in France, though? Because it, it does seem as if more work could be put in. There could be more being extracted from this fruit that is the French national team. Yeah, it's it's really weird. Um, I think they... Everyone has, I think, is of the same opinion that like there could be more done with this team. There's so much talent. There's so much going on. There's so many good players that people want to see like put up on a platform to succeed. I think it's just entirely impossible to do that with everyone in the team because not everyone's, you know, positive aspects line up with one another. The difficulty with in saying that and like playing completely into the camp of like, oh, Deschamps is just, you know, dealing dealing with a tough situation, which is like a dream situation, but it turns tough. Um, is that like, so for example, today they they did pretty well. They created some really solid chances against Peru who ultimately were kind of shut down by a French defense and um, a French defending system. But the main thing was N'Golo Kante like intercepting the ball in midfield and, and allowing their attacking front three, you know, Griezmann, Mbappe, other guys to, to really go forward and attack Peru in space, which no team, regardless of the quality of your defenders wants to happen. That's very good. That if that's their style and that's going to be their style going forward, that's something that a team has won basically the Premier League on. Two teams have actually won the Premier League on. Premier League on. The difficulty with doing that is that okay, if you're going to do that, then what's the point of having Pogba next to him? Why not have him a little higher up? Why not have him in a different position? Why not maybe save him and employ different approaches against different teams? There's such a weird thing going on in terms of the duality of having like a Conte Pogba midfield. And it's not that I don't want Pogba to play. If anything, rather, I think a, a lot of the more tactical minded people that, I t- that I've talked to, like we want to see Steven and Zanzi in the team because ultimately he provides better progression um, from the defensive line into midfield and going forward. And that's, you know, I think where we'd see the best Pogba if it was like a deeper midfield, a midfield three of Nzanzi. And then you can have Conte in there if you want just to play that, you know, intercepting role that allows you to counterattack really well. But he's also a relatively proficient midfielder. And then have Pogba in there because he can thrive off of all of that. Probably have Mendy and Sidibe on the, at, at fullback, you know, bombing up the wings and giving him options all over the place. So that's, that's always going to be the story i think with france and in any competition that they have this like golden generation of players in every single position because there isn't a position that they're weak in um is that there will be a group of people that want a player to shine and that's just not going to happen with all of this going on and so far you know Deschamps has done okay i I think we have to judge him when he fails and he, he hasn't yet so the one thing i am curious about is paul pogba and i think he is impossible not to discuss because of just who he is. He had a very good game, I thought, for France, or a good game, if you will. He played a significant role in the the winning goal, essentially, with, with Olivier Giroud by slotting him in behind. Overall, I thought his performance was fairly solid. 
And something he touched on afterwards was the role of N'Golo Kante. He said that, you know, N'Golo Kante has 15 lungs, which we've all heard before. But more importantly, that he can look back and he can see Kante sort of covering for him and doing things that, you know, you might argue that Pogba should be doing, but maybe just can't because he's human after all. Is there any lesson for Manchester United in there to swing it back to a club setting for a second? Because they obviously have just completed Fred or the signing of Fred this week. It's gone through. He's been confirmed. I don't know if Fred is that Kante type. My instinct from what I've seen is no. But is there anything that they could learn from that? Is it worth them trying to get, I know it sounds crazy to say it, a player with Kante's stamina, if nothing else, into the team that can can do what he does. I mean, it's possible, but I think if anything, Jose Mourinho probably watches that match and it reaffirms his belief because Deschamps is trying to do the same thing. Like I said before, it's weird to have like that deeper midfield two of Kante and Pogba, and then have the you know the rest of the midfield and attack set up as it is. So he, I think the 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 difficulty for Pogba in his development since he's left Juventus is that the coach the coaches that have had an influence on him in terms of like how they play him have wanted to make him into like a more two-way midfielder, which is a fine, I don't know, thought process, intuition, logical train of thought. But why not just use him like he was used at Juventus? I understand there's a desire to maybe strive for more with Pogba, maybe have a more balanced team. But I think I want to see the Pogba that I saw back then. And if after X amount of years with X amount of coaches at this point, we haven't seen that, Let's just let's just go back to to the old to the old one. <laughs> <laughs> let's go back. I like that. I like that. One instance where we're trying to go forward is with the coverage and analysis that we give of Senegal, who were quite impressive in their their showing against Poland. They emerged two one winners. Um, but in the wake of this game, it sparked an, an interesting debate about how we cover sometimes black footballers, often African teams, as being pace and power in inverted commas. And there were a few different pundits who were accused of falling onto this old stereotype and this old trope. I think we could discuss that until the cows come home, but I think what I would suggest is if you want deeper reading on that, Zito Madu of, of SB Nation has done something, Zeke's as he's known on Twitter, so by all means dive into it that way. Nico, I want to kind of use your skills and expertise here Having seen Senegal, what did impress you about the way that they played and the way that Al essentially orchestrated this victory? I like the fact that they are somewhat of a pressing team. Like that has entered the public consciousness as like a real thing as opposed to, you know, oh, he's just pressuring him. Like pressing and the structure of how you do it and the complications that surround it as a general team tactic are something that are very much in the public consciousness now. And that is something that was well perpetuated by Senegal it's it's something that I think they have the structure to do and they set up really well going forward and you know obviously these aren't your words but I think you mentioned in um, one of the preview podcasts that Javier Mascherano talked a little bit about Nigeria and how he felt like they were disorganized and it's that disorganization of an African team maybe that some people view as typical um, that uh, that disheveled them in the past and disheveled them in their past meetups and I think or matches, rather. And I think that's really not the case with Senegal. They had a good 
pressing formation to go off of in terms of the triggers that you have when uh, when you when you are a pressing team and how you activate those. And I think they executed that to to a great extent. And Poland, who have been pretty good over the past couple of years in European competition and the friendlies that I've seen, you know, were completely exploited by that. So it could be a really exciting African team that rails against, as you were saying, the the more mainstream and typical coverage of them that African teams are disorganized, African teams aren't good, African teams only are filled with athletes. That's not the case with the Senegal team, and it's it's nice to see because it's fun, it's exciting, and it disproves stereotypes. Yeah, definitely. I think I mean personally, I think I've seen that up close this this last season with with Mohamed Diame, someone who was very much billed as it's about his pace, his power. Occasionally, talk about his his intricacy in in tight spaces and stuff like that but it it was very much reduced to intangibles about his physical prowess but the thing that struck out to me this season about him is his reading of the game and how he just gets into places he he sees where the ball's going to go he spots the danger and just clears things up so intelligently it's um yeah i think we must all try harder in, in that avenue when when trying to evaluate things a team that doesn't have to try harder though is russia um Russia are good, Nico. They're, they're scoring goals. They've scored eight in this tournament so far. And I believe I was listening to a podcast today that said usually the first team to score eight goals in the World Cup is the team that wins it. Um, so, you know, sh- surely Russia's name is etched on the the trophy already, no? Definitely not. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think they have outperformed, seriously outperformed our expectations of them. But at the same time, I think they've played teams that kind that weren't really good at all i think i was you know i think with any and that's the thing with maybe the thing that we were talking about before like there's just a tendency for people and i think you can sympathize with this as well like if you're front of in if you're in front of a a camera or a microphone as your job or it's something that you want to be your job and you do it a lot and you know you don't have the time or because there isn't enough time to know every single team and every single player and have a really cultured and correct take on all of those things you can just say things and i think there was a you know there was a what is it an expectation for myself and other people just in the media in general to kind of i don't know not embellish but certainly talk about teams that we didn't know in an ambiguous way and that was certainly how i felt about saudi arabia i had never seen any of their players and i had to have an opinion on them and that's okay but like they were really really bad and Russia scoring five goals against them is, I don't know, somewhat expected. Russia are still bad. That doesn't mean they're good. But the teams that they've played, I guess what I'm trying to say is the team, the teams that they've played haven't been very good. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're good. They're just not as bad as we thought they were going to be. <laughs> that's, I mean, yeah, that's it. I, and as well, though, it feels like they've had a little bit of luck, Russia, as well. And in, in so oh yeah, they've as... finished. They've like finished all the chances that they have made. Pretty much, like they haven't made that many, and they haven't been all that good. But every single one, they put in the back of the net. <laughs> well, I was thinking as well the the Zagoev injury because Cheryshev was not starting for for Russia. Obviously, as they went into the tournament, it was all about Zagoev, who I can understand. You know, is is or was I should say the poster boy for Russian football at one stage, but has, has probably hung around at Cheska Moscow for a little bit too long. But Cheryshev's coming in and really stolen his opportunity, which I think you know, fair play to the guy. He's He's made the most of this tournament, if if nothing else. The, the same can't be said for Argentina, who, wow, where do you even start with this group? It, it, it's a football-mad country to begin with, and I think 
possibly Ed Malian summed it up really well. <laughs> their their attack, I think he said, is a bit like their football. It's or their culture and and what have you. It's quite vibrant and and exciting, but their defense is like their economy in the sense it's prone to collapse. Um, apologies if I'm not quoting him verbatim there, but it was along those lines. You can read it yourself if if you're that desperate. They did have an absolute nightmare um, against Croatia on Thursday night. It's three nil defeat. Essentially, one of the worst results in Argentinian football history. Some have said, and I don't think that's um, sensationalism. Where do they even go next from here? That's the thing because the system doesn't seem to work for Messi. Um, in general, they look prone to being exposed on the defensive end every single time a team kicks the ball forward. What would you be looking to do with their final group game rapidly approaching and essentially them needing a few favours as well? That's pretty tough um, because I think, as you rightly said, the system is not working. (laughs) The expected goals in terms of Argentina versus Croatia was 0.9. They created technically what is rated less to be – or to be less than one goal versus Croatia who registered 2.2 and they scored three. So almost, almost there, um, which is indicative of the indicative of the match. And I kind of talked about this in the preview podcast that we had. I said their affinity and their want and desire to press and go forward and do so in like a super aggressive way is admirable. And I think if you look at it, if you zoom out and look at it and say, okay, well, most teams are going to try to be compact against Argentina. So when they do have the ball briefly, um, it probably wouldn't be the worst idea in the world to go ahead and try to pressure them out of it so that, you know, we get the ball back. And also there's the possibility of us creating a chance within their half. It's not the worst logistical idea. The difficulty is that they've been so bad at it that Croatia created a ton of chances because they were able to break it so often. If a team is constantly breaking your press, then not only are you not achieving what you wanted to, but you're exposing yourself and letting your defenders be isolated and just get wrecked and scored on like Argentina did today. So, I mean, I feel sorry for that team in general because I think Sampaoli is a good coach. He did good things at Sevilla. I, you know, I've read something before. It was like a year before he took charge that it's it was always his dream to have Messi as a player, and I think he looked at this as like a crowning achievement in his life. Like set aside the the monetary gain that he gets from you know coaching in general, but I think he looked at this as somewhat of like a a crowning achievement in his life to play with the great or coach the greatest player of all time and have the ability to use him in a system that. I think he wants to imagine is complex and good for the country, but it just hasn't worked out. I think if you look at the differences, perhaps we were talking about Iran, like Spain completely shut Iran up by not playing. They played into their, their, the strategy that Iran wanted them to like they, Spain dominated the ball. They, you know, had, uh, Spain had a ton of possession, they, but they still created a ton of chances and they didn't ir- allow Iran to do you know, to ha- to hit them on the counter because their counter pressing was so good. They stopped them from, you know, passing the ball forward quickly and they got, they got them out of possession. They were able to create some chances through that. Argentina just haven't done the same for whatever reason, whether it's messy, whether it's the structure, whether it's the players, whether it's just too ambitious of a system to try to, to try to play against a decent Croatia team and, and, and Iceland who are going to be super compact anyways. I just, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a, a waste because I think this gives way to the takes that like, oh, Ronaldo has willed 
a wayward Portugal team to two wins, whereas Messi doesn't care and he, you know, isn't good enough to bring that Argentina team forward when that just isn't the case. It's just it's different circumstances, it's different systems, and it's ultimately different players. It is, and yeah, I can't help feeling if Argentina had Luka Modric in the middle of midfield, <laughs> things might look better. But I think comparisons are unfair. What is is much more pertinent is just to discuss how brilliant Modric is. Like, he's genuinely... I was talking to someone tonight on, on Twitter about it, and I said, you know, the thing that strikes me about him is he always seems to know when to hold the ball and when to let it go, to paraphrase an old uh, Kenny Rogers song. And I think that's what I really admire about him is that, I mean, his goal was brilliant. I know that some folk were saying that, you know, Caballero was not um, at his best for that. He wasn't his best all night, to be frank. But there's so much to like about this Croatia team, specifically with Modric, because he is, you know, fast approaching the end of his career. I think he's he's not probably got even another World Cup in him unless he really pushes the, the pedal to the floor on, on the edge of his career. What, what do you think of him? Because, again, you're someone I, I respect and, and consider quite an intellectual when it comes to analysing football. Where, where do you stand on Luka Modric? Is it a fair point to say that he's one of, if not the best midfielders that, that Europe currently has to offer? 150%. I think if anyone is looking to like be a midfielder and they have the talent and the ability um, to do that at a professional level, the two players that you want to watch are Luka Modric and Tony Cruz, and they happen to play in the same team, so you can kind of save yourself some time there. Um, but I think, ironically, Tony Cruz has kind of suffered from not having midfielders around him that are able to play off of him or compete at the same level uh, in terms of like the national team. Like Germany have plenty of other good mid- midfielders, but I think in terms of their movement at Real Madrid, they, they play off of each other so well, and they have the understanding of one another um, to play really well, and, and that benefits Real Madrid massively. Luka Modric, in in addition to just being brilliant, like you outlined, he has Kovacic, who understands the Real Madrid way and you know can learn a lot from a midfield perspective of how to be proficient in that area of the field, as well as Ivan Rakitic, who plays in a similar similarly brilliant system. So it's a midfield trio that is exceptional, um, and and Luka Modric is definitely, I think, the crown jewel of that. Absolutely, and they will rightly be going through to the the next round. The one concern for Argentina as well is that their coach has confirmed his decision, or his intention, I should say, excuse me, to make a series of changes for their last game of the group against Iceland, which you would think will probably put Iceland in a strong position. Now, in fairness to Iceland, they they have got Nigeria uh, tomorrow, I think, on the Friday. So, or today, as you are probably listening, that is a, a potentially big game for them. If I'm to put... A figurative twenty dollar bill on the table, one way or the other. Do you think Argentina make it out, Nico? Yes or no? That's so tough. I mean, I really want them to, and Nigeria, I don't think are the greatest of teams uh, in terms of like their ability to either perpetuate a style that Croatia had, which is excellence in midfield. They were able to match Argentina's system really well, and then hit them on the counter, like we talked about. And then also Iceland, who just sat really compact, and I think have a Burnley esque style of defending that defies you know the laws of physics to some extent um but they do need luck in that other result if i'm not mistaken so mm-hmm. i'd like i'd like them to but i want to say maybe no i i want to say they probably don't get out and croatia go go on through with uh with um 
I don't know. I don't know who to put next. I don't know. I I, I don't. But I don't think Argentina get out. So yeah, that's where I'll that's where I'll leave your dollar bill. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Poeva Benega. Player I'm a big fan of, but sadly will be leaving uh, the tournament. It looks like before he's supposed to. A man who is definitely not doing that is Elliot Bloody Hackney, friend of the show, friend of myself, friend of Nick, just friend of everybody. It's very difficult to dislike Elliot. If you do, there's probably something wrong with you. And he has been buzzing about the fact that he was going to be in Russia um, at all England's games and was kind enough to drop in and give us some dispatches from time to time. His first one will give us now. It's myself and, and him having a brief chat in the wake of Tunisia to get his thoughts on that game, as well as Panama. So here he is. I am now joined by our roving reporter out in Russia, none other than friend of the show, Elliot Hackney, face of Bear Pit TV, among many other ventures. Elliot, you were there last night, you lucky devil. So I think the first question I've got to ask you is, what was the atmosphere like? Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, I wish it was in the other side, which is opposite us, which was where there was a lot more England fans, and it was uh, seemed like they had a bit more of a mental at the end, but... No, we were surrounded by Russian fans, Tunisian fans, but it was still a great atmosphere. There's plenty of Mexican waves, which I don't tend to get involved in. But no, it was it was great, and it, even by the end of the game, plenty of the Russians and even some of the Tunisian fans were celebrating uh, the late winners. So yeah, it was a great atmosphere, to be fair. And that second goal, I think it sent the whole of England jumping up and down in in disbelief and and excitement. What was it like for you being there? What was your kind of reaction? Uh, yeah, I went absolutely mental. Um, I've put it out on social media and it's in the vlog that I've been doing on the YouTube channel. But yeah, absolutely lost, uh, lost my uh, end, so to say, and went uh, completely mad. But as to say, those opportunities don't come around often and God knows uh, what the whole country would do after some of the clips that we've seen on social media if we actually won the whole thing. And how did you feel in that moment? Did, did it feel as if the goal was coming inside the stadium or did it have more of an air of it being a frustrating draw for England? Do you know what? I, I knew it was coming. Because I'm not one to film myself at games usually, you know, I'm, I've, I've done the bare pit and other things for a long time and I usually just film the crowd or whatever else. But since I've been doing this vlog for the World Cup, I, we, I thought we'd been so good on set pieces and we actually lined up the corner late on. I thought, do you know what, I'm just going to put the camera on. And so it, so it happened, Harry Maguire flicks it on to uh, Kane who edited it in. So yeah, I, I, could, I pretty much thought, something's, something's got to come of this. I thought this last moment of the dice. It's turned out to be uh, the goal. Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk about the starting lineup, about substitutions. Are there any changes you would want to make going into that Panama game? Any that you you would like to see Gareth Southgate push with? Um, for me, Dali Ali didn't have the brightest of games, but I think he has picked up a knock. But even even if he hadn't picked up a knock, I'd, I'd probably change him out for Ruben Loftus Cheek. He was very bright and positive when he came on. Actually, wanting to create something, he was energetic. Uh, so I'd definitely stop Ruben Loftus-Cheek going into the next game. Sterling didn't have the greatest of games. I'd persist with Sterling, though, because I think he's, he, he deserves that other chance for everything we've seen him do for Man City this season. And another poor performer for me was Lingard. Uh, I don't think Lingard had a great game, and I'd probably change him out of there. But I'm not sure what other attacking options we've got if you're going to put Ruben Loftus-Cheek in there that we can put, replace Lingard with. But for me, those are probably the two changes. I, I, I don't want to you know, disrupt the team too much. And you mentioned there, you know, you've you've logging and and stuff with your channel, which I would encourage all our listeners to to go and check out because it is a really great insight into Russia. How have you found the country so far? Because you've you've had a little bit of a, a a dip around. You've seen some things. You've been with the fans. Has, has it been a an enjoyable and I guess ultimately safe experience? 
absolutely brilliant. Um, the Russian people have been nothing but warm, welcoming, uh, friendly, especially when we got to Volgograd Airport yesterday morning. There was, uh, they were handing out hats, uh, city guys helping you get in a taxi. They were giving you fans to bat away the flies because it's a fly infestation in uh, Volgograd, it seems. They've had to uh, even spray and set aside over the stadium ahead of the games. But, yeah, the Russian people have been nothing but brilliant. And it's a real shame that you know the English media and many media outlets have been sort of scaring England fans off with all this proposed trouble because from everything that we've heard, Putin doesn't want any sort of trouble whatsoever. Uh, and we've seen none. And, you know, and there's been reported hardly any. So it's a real shame that there's not more England fans out here. Mm. And obviously we'll be checking in with you for the, the rest of the games. For those of our listeners who want to see your tweets, who want to see your videos, where can they go and find you, mate? Uh, at Elliot Hackney, two L's, one T, and then Hackney is in the place. And that's YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, wherever it might be. But yeah, probably go to YouTube, check up these vlogs and actually see what I'm doing in video form. Lovely stuff. Well, safe travels, mate. We'll be in touch after England-Panama. Thanks, Chris. Cheers, guys. Ah, Elliot, what a gent. He will be with us at different stages during this tournament. You never know. If they go all the way, he might even stay. He is that committed to the, the three lines. Um, bless him. But that's all we've got time for on this episode. Uh, this feels like a Batman outro from the 70s. Same bat time, same bat place. Um, we'll be with you in a couple of days to, to, to regroup, to, to evaluate, to get all those things. But in the meantime, I really want to hear your thoughts through our Twitter at The Front 3. Because, again, this is always a conversation. It's not, it's not a lecture. Nico, it's been a pleasure to have you uh, on this episode. Is there anything our listeners should be looking out for, reading from you, because you're always busy these days? There's a couple things. Um, firstly, I'd like to address the – I know we've had a lot of comments and questions um, to myself and to the Front 3 account in general, that which we all have access to. Um, so we see all these things, and it's the Patreon questions. We obviously mentioned a while ago that we wanted to do Patreon stuff, and we will still be doing that, but we felt like it was unfair to bar you guys from some of the content that we have in the World Cup because, you know, it's the World Cup. It should be for everyone. So we're going to hold off on the Patreon up until like after the World Cup. It's going to be a little ambiguous. Maybe It's definitely going to be before the start of the new season, but definitely after the World Cup so that everybody has everything during it and we all get to be a community together unbarred by financial restrictions. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we're going to keep that. You guys can keep listening to the front three for now. Uh, I have... A few things, as Chris mentioned, I wrote some things for The Athletic on England. It's super influenced by Pochettino, so I figured I'd write about that. It's, it's a, I think it's a pretty decent read, especially after their, um, their really good result over Tunisia. It's not just a good result, but a good performance as well. And then I wrote for The Ringer talking about how it's really difficult to be a team with uh, a ton of talent because, as I said before, it pigeonholes you into a style, and that can be dangerous. So go check that out at The Athletic and theringer.com. Chris, do you have anything uh, for the people? I have a Betball column that is due out Friday, so you're going to have to be rapid quick if you want to take those tips, um, including an anytime bet on Alfred Finn Bogassan of Iceland and a Brazil win with over 2.5 goals against Costa Rica, which kills me to say as someone with Costa Rican in-laws. Um, but I would definitely recommend both Nico's pieces. I've read them. Um, I stayed awake. I understood them. And if I can understand them... I guarantee that you will understand them. Um, but that's all we've got time for on this episode of The Front 3. Enjoy your football, enjoy the World Cup, and just be good to other, each other. <laughs>